This is Rob Pincus, and welcome to the Rob Pincus Podcast. The Rob Pincus Podcast is brought to you by the Personal Defense Network. The Personal Defense Network is the leading destination of high-quality online personal defense video content and a no-nonsense gathering place for those serious about arming themselves for defense in every aspect of their lives. To learn more, visit www.personaldefensenetwork.com. Now, here's Rob. Welcome to the Rob Pincus Podcast. This is the place where we talk about gun rights, politics, and armed defense training, really all kinds of self-defense training. I've been in this industry for a couple of decades. PersonalDefenseNetwork.com is the place to go to check out what we teach, but don't check that out until after you listen to this podcast. And maybe share it and definitely subscribe to it if you're not already subscribed. If you haven't listened to the Rob Pincus podcast before, we work in two segments. I'm going to give you a segment on politics and gun rights, and then we're going to segue into a conversation today with our producer. You've heard him on the show before, Jeff Ott. He's going to come in and we're going to talk about training. We're going to talk about some specific questions he has. I already know what one of them are. We're going to get a little bit into gear and that's going to be fun. It's going to be something we haven't done because we've really been talking about high-level concepts in our training segments. Today, we're going to get down into some of that nitty-gritty, and we know people like to talk about the stuff. I think the concepts are far more important, but we can't deny that the stuff is important too, so we'll talk about that in our second segment. Our first segment is brought to you by Second Amendment Organization. Now, I'm the Executive Vice President of Second Amendment Organization. I'm really proud of that, and I'm proud of what we focus on at 2AO. At 2AO.org, you can learn how to become a better grassroots gun rights advocate. Remember, the first step to being a good grassroots advocate is just simply setting a good example, being an intelligent, articulate, and responsible gun owner. When people ask you about guns, you know what you're talking about. When people see you with guns, you look like you know what you're doing, and you look like you're safe. Now, we know that safe can be a trigger word, but we use the word responsible because a responsible gun owner is a safe gun owner, obviously, and they're also going to be an advocate. I think it is is part of the responsibility of a gun owner in the United States of America in this day and age to be an advocate for our gun rights. So check out 2AO.org after the podcast. Today on the politics segment, we're going to talk about something that comes up a lot. Universal background checks. What do we mean by universal background checks? Why am I against universal background checks? And why are so many people in the gun control community for them? We're going to try to get all those things answered in the next, oh, I don't know, about 10 minutes. So first of all, universal background check. That would mean the end of private transfers. And it's incredibly important that we talk about it that way because I think that's the most compelling way to get right to the crux of why it's a horrible idea. If you end private transfers, you put the government in the middle of every exchange of any firearm inside of our country. And that means it's a privacy issue. That means it's a property issue. That means it's a registration issue. And ultimately, of course, the big fear is it could become the means to confiscation. And confiscation is quite an infringement. Wouldn't you agree? When you hear a gun control advocate or somebody who's, who's anti-gun rights come out and say, you know, we don't want to take the guns away. We want you to be able to have your guns. We just want controls around it. Or they'll say things like common sense or rational or reasonable restrictions, things like that. Well, none of those those things are in the Second Amendment. And we do ultimately have to get back to the bottom line of 
our rights not being infringed. Shall not be infringed. It's a very clear clause. It's a very clear concept. And we know that our rights are infringed. Now, there have been Supreme Court cases which have said that reasonable restrictions are okay. Well, some people agree with that. Obviously, a lot of us don't. When we talk about background checks, and you'll see things said by the gun control community quite often, things like, you know, X percentage, and it's, it's 60, 70, 80% of gun owners are supporters of background checks. Well, I'll tell you this. I would say that well over 90% of gun owners in the United States of America today have probably complied with a background check. And whether it's been multiple background checks to buy a firearm, whether it's to purchase a gun that's new from a federally licensed firearms dealer who has to put you through a background check, whether it's a background check to get a firearms owner's ID card, uh, the, the permission from the state to buy a gun that's required in places like Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, uh, whether it's the background check for a permit in a state that doesn't offer constitutional carry or even where there is permitless carry, somebody who's opted to get the permit instead, as many, many people do in states like Arizona, where there's some advantages to having the permit over simply exercising your right uh, for permitless carry because you can own a gun. It doesn't really matter why. It's just something that is self-evident. Most American gun owners have gone through a background check. I have found far, far too many people in the gun control movement who think that just because we have gone through a background check, we support background checks or we think it's a good idea. So first of all, you got to take that statistic with a grain of salt as you do with all statistics. But it's also really important to understand the question. If somebody asked the average gun owner, do you think the background check you had to go through to get your gun was a big deal, they're going to say no. Because honestly, it's not that big a deal. You fill out a form, you wait maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes in almost every case, comes back, you can buy the gun, go for it. And you know what? I've gone through so many of those background checks that it's not an emotional stress. It's not, again, that much of a time problem. You fill out the form, you get your gun. It's not a big deal. But it's an infringement. And as an infringement on our rights, that's the big deal. And it's something that many, many gun owners have simply come to accept. And we've accepted it for a long time now. But again, accept is very, very different from support. So when you look at the gun community and you say, well, by and large, the gun community complies with background checks, why not take that next step and make them universal? Why not make them 100%? Well, again, the reason is the end of private transfers. And, and this is the crux of the issue for me. This is why I will always be against universal background checks because it means I can't give my daughter the gift of a firearm. It means that I can't sell my friend a gun after years and years and years of knowing he's been a responsible gun owner. I have a gun in my collection that he really wants. I can sell it to him at a, a better price than he's going to get anywhere else in the world because I want him to have it because I know it's important to him. Maybe I'm going to gift it to him. I should be able to do that without the government being involved. And far too often, the government wants to be involved in every little aspect of our life. And of course, the people that aren't involved in this this hobby, that aren't involved in gun ownership, that aren't involved in wanting to, to give a gift of a firearm or make sure that a family member is well-equipped with a defensive firearm and the, obviously the training to go with it, they don't see a problem with the government getting involved. The biggest comparison I think that gets made here, and this also overlaps with something else we've talked about on the Rob Pincus podcast, and that's mandatory training, is 
the privilege of driving a car. That's where the comparison gets made. In fact, California last month actually went ahead and put a law in place, or at least they have approved a law that is as potentially going to be signed by the mayor of San Jose. The city council there approved a law where they're going to require liability insurance, and they're making the comparison to the way you have to have liability insurance if you're going to drive a car on the road. And of course, many, many, many people have talked about the requirement to have a license to drive a car on the road. Well, again, there is not an enumerated civil right in our constitution that you have the right to drive a car on the road. This is not something the founders thought about, anticipated, or thought was important to spell out. Now you have the right to move. You have freedom of movement and freedom of travel. You know That's not supposed to be stopped, but very specifically, that has not been extended to the right to drive a car. Well, firearms, arms, are explicitly talked about in our Constitution, and our right to keep and bear them shall not be infringed. Letting the government into the space of every firearms transaction that happens in this country is a clear and inappropriate infringement. And it's not something that firearms community, the firearms community, gun owners, or the gun industry is willing to accept. So a, a huge, huge difference from the current background check system that we have. And in fact, I think there's certainly ways that it could be improved, especially when we talk about um, things in the mental health space. And we've talked about expanded background checks, but we've also talked about all the obvious exceptions that there should be to background checks, right? If someone already has a concealed carry permit, if someone already is licensed by the state as an armed security guard or a police officer, if somebody's an active duty member of our military, if somebody is known to me, if someone is, is a member of a, a gun club that I'm a member of, if somebody competes in a sanctioned competition, any kind of organized firearms competition that I also compete in, um, in any of these spaces, we should not have to go through the government approval to get a background check and get uh, what would essentially be a redundant permission to go ahead and own yet another gun. So I think it's really important to understand the difference between the sort of complacency that has set in, um, and maybe as a bit, it's a big detriment to the gun rights movement, and we need to think about this, the complacency that has set in around the background checks we go through when we buy a new gun from a federally licensed firearms dealer today, and the concept of universal background checks. The gun control community tries to conflate those two things, and we need to make sure that in our grassroots gun rights advocacy and in our discussion with politicians, our elected representatives, we're very clear that no, we do not want an end to private transfers. And you can learn more about the concept of background checks, universal background checks, and the importance of protecting private transfers at gunrights.info. Gunrights.info is a webpage that is run and developed by Second Amendment Organization, the sponsor of our politics and gun rights segment here at the Rob Pincus Podcast. Moving into our training segment, which is brought to you by personaldefensenetwork.com, um, we're going to get ready to have a conversation. Now, now I'll tell you, um, one of the things that this podcast has made really, really clear is that while I can talk for, for you know, many, many minutes, many, many hours maybe on any of these topics um, without interruption, I really enjoy a dialogue. I really enjoy the question and answer. Um, it's one of the things that led me into the educational work that I do. When you go to personaldefensenetwork.com, what you're going to see is both short and long format presentations specifically designed for people to take in without the interaction. Now, you can hit the comments section. You can go up to our highest level of classes and do some live interactive stuff. We do run live Q&A broadcasts monthly at personalinventsnetwork.com. But the vast majority of the thousands of pieces of content there are short format 
let me present some information to you. I'm going to tell you about this gear. I'm going to tell you about this technique. I'm going to demonstrate this drill, and I'm going to expect that you're going to be able to take all that information in and then use it. Decide whether or not you're interested in that piece of equipment. Decide whether or not you want to go run that drill or decide whether or not you're going to put that tactic or that concept into your training and practice. Um, But what I really enjoy, even more than presenting that kind of information, is the interaction that comes from live classes, really standing on the range, standing in the classroom and and giving somebody some information and giving them the opportunity to ask questions. So we can do that at personaldefensenetwork.com, but it's not our specialty here at the Rob Pincus podcast. It's going to become more and more of the specialty as we interact with more and more people. And today, once again, for a second time, we bring in the guy who made the Rob Pincus podcast a thing. I'm the one who asked me to do it and who produces it for us every episode, Jeff Ott. Jeff, welcome back to uh, this side, the front side of the show. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Rob. I enjoy being here. Good. And we're going to talk about training today. Last time you were on and we did a dialogue, it was on gun rights. It was on a gun rights and politics segment. Today, we're going to talk about training. And I know you have uh, at least a few questions and we'll, we'll see if we can we can kind of let those either take us down a, a natural progression, a sort of organic path of discussion, or if we just kind of keep picking your brain uh, to pick my brain and get the answers that the audience wants. Audience, remember, um, you can always hit us in the comments or, or reach out to us through robpinkuspodcast.com and give us those questions. Maybe you'll inspire a future segment. Jeff, what's uh, what's the first thing on your mind today? Well, one of the biggest questions right now is it, it, it deals with everything else that's in society right now is the lack of anything on the shelves. And ammunition on the shelves has been an issue for a long, many years, and especially bad now. And and so, so some people have turned to, to hand loading, and that's even become an issue because primers and powders and brass is not available. So let's let's just take this whole category of ammunition for both self-defense and for training and kind of break that apart in the next few minutes. Yeah, the good news is um, having just come back from SHOT Show, I know that those those shelves are starting to fill back up and that the distribution warehouses especially um, are starting to see more ammo coming out of the factories and being able to be shipped to the retailers. And whether that's ordering online or direct to the, the brick and mortar retailers, either way, the ammunition is starting to flow again. Unfortunately, it's flowing at a higher price than we were seeing a couple of years ago, and and that can impact people's ability to train and practice as well. So a couple of things. When it comes to hand loads, I want to make sure that the audience knows we're going to distinguish between really three types of ammunition. We've got original manufactured ammunition from from the big names that you recognize, or maybe some of the small name companies that really truly do first-run brass original Here's the the loaded manufactured ammunition. And then we've got reloads or remanufactured ammunition. That's what when the guys come out to your range and they collect the brass in the big buckets and they take it, uh, it, you know, by the truckload to a remanufacturing facility. um, That's another level of of ammunition production. And then there's true hand loading. That's that's the guy with the, the, you know, grocery bag that's out there picking up the the brass one at a time out of the mud (laughs) at the range. And he takes it home, hopefully cleans it up and, and builds himself some ammunition. So let's talk about all three. That would be me. That's what you did. So you do some of that. I I will admit that I got into that for about six and a half minutes uh, in the 1990s (laughs) when I thought, oh, I'm going to start. I got all the stuff and I was – 
reloading. I was shooting a lot of 40 at the time. So I was reloading 40. I was reloading 10 millimeter. I was reloading nine millimeter. I think I reloaded some 38. Um, I started experimenting a little bit with reloading uh, five, five, six or two, two, three. And uh, mm-hmm. I got burned down on it really fast. So reloading, um, let's start, we'll start there. We'll start with the, the, sure. the hand loading first. So the, the hand loads that you're going to make, reloading your own ammunition um, is something It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of, I think, diligence, um, a lot of focus. And you can save some money if you do it in very high volume. Well, as I said, it it takes time to do this, right? And you have to be diligent. Right. You have to, you know, either buy new brass, which is going to add to your expense, or clean up the brass and pop out the old primers and, and get make sure every, the, everything's to spec and there's no cracks and that you don't have weak uh, shoulders or a weak neck, especially on some of those uh, higher pressure rifle calibers. So there there is a, a science to it. Um, I think there's a diligence, there's a patience, there's an attention to detail that's incredibly important when it comes to doing your own hand loading, reloading your own ammunition for training or practice. It's so much so that in the industry, it's not uncommon to have ranges or instructors say you cannot use your own personal hand loads or reloads at our facility because they don't want to take on the liability of there being a mistake. Now, I will tell you, thousands of classes, thousands of students, tens of thousands of students by now, um, I do not restrict people from using their own hand loads. I don't recommend that, you know, if, if someone goes to a class with you, and they say, hey, I'm running low on ammo. Does anybody have any extra? I don't recommend that people use other people's reloads, but I probably wouldn't restrict it on the range. Now, what I also will tell you is if I believe your ammunition is causing problems in terms of reliability or if I see something that makes me think the ammunition is going to be dangerous, I'll, I'll tell you, knock it off. You can't use it anymore um, out on the range. You know, if, you're, if your hand loads are so poor in quality, um, not that they're necessarily going to cause a safety problem, but that they're going to be a distraction from the class because your gun keeps malfunctioning for whatever reason, uh, then obviously that's not going to be conducive to a good experience for anybody. So if, you, uh, if you're a good hand loader and you're an experienced reloader and you trust your rounds and they run your gun, uh, bring them to one of my classes, but always call ahead to a range or to another instructor to make sure they're going to be okay with it. Um, the next level we go to is the, the remanufactured or the professionally reloaded ammunition. Um, this stuff is sold by the millions of rounds by many, many companies all over the country. Um, I think of Angel Fire Ammo is one of them that was a sponsor of uh, the Personal Defense Network training tour for several years. And this was once fired brass that they picked up from military facilities um, and remanufactured into factory spec loads. Um, primarily the popular loads, you know, 45, 9mm, 5.56. I think they did some 308 uh, for a while. Um, this stuff is, is to me, for training and practice, just as good as anything you're going to buy from any of the major manufacturers. So when it comes to, you know, remanufactured versus original manufacturer in terms of quality, safety, any of those concerns, um, you're going to find out really quick if you're you're potentially buying remanufactured ammunition from a company that doesn't do it well. Um, obviously, any company, including the majors, they're all uh, subject to a, a bad run or a bad lot every now and then. Um, and when you're, when you're pumping out 9 million rounds of 9 millimeter a day like Winchester Ammunition does sometimes at their factory down in Mississippi, you might get one wrong. Like that'll happen. Um, but when, when a, a company is doing remanufacturing, they've been around for a while. Usually these are regionally based companies. And you'll know from the local shooting community, the local competition community especially um, is big on remanufactured ammunition. So you want to just vet the company. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about a, a quality remanufactured ammunition being used in training or practice. Then we get to 
the manufacturer, the original manufacturer ammo. Now, this is going to be the, the highest quality control, um, you know, the, the sort of the highest investment in every part of the process because they have, honestly, at the end of the day, the most to lose. Companies like Remington, Federal, uh, Hornaday, and, and certainly Winchester Ammunition that I've worked with for many, many years, um, these companies know what's at stake. They've been in the business for decades. They know what they're doing. And again, all of them can have a bad run, a bad lot, uh, an upside down primer in the box every once in a while. Um, but at the end of the day, even their bargain basement ammunition, you think of Winchester White Box, uh, you think of the American Eagle brand under Federal, uh, these, these boxes of ammunition are exactly the kind of thing that your gun was designed to shoot. Um, they factory spec ammunition, factory spec guns. I mean, it just makes sense. It's going to be a little more expensive than the remanufactured ammunition probably. But the good news is you should be able to find it just about anywhere when it's flowing. Now that, again, when we have a drought, we have a drought and those droughts are pretty universal. But uh, they, they, you know, we are going to not find ammo in Texas and not find ammo in Colorado and not find ammo in New Hampshire. When you can find the ammo, um, you know, if your gun likes uh, the Winchester white box, cool. Then you're going to be able to find the same ammo in Texas, the same ammo in New Hampshire, the same ammo in Colorado, and that's a big advantage. The uh, last piece of this puzzle, however, is carry ammo. And when it comes to defensive carry ammo, I do not recommend that you use your own hand loads. Um, you're not going to get it better than they do. Um, I do not recommend that you use remanufactured ammunition because it's not worth saving a few pennies. Um, pay the extra pennies and use the original quality manufactured ammo. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan of bonded hollow points, uh, the Winchester line, the Defender line, the uh, the new USA Ready defense round, which has a filled cavity. There's some uh, kind of a vented ribbed uh, insert that goes into the uh, the cavity of that hollow point, and it's red, um, Winchester red. That's a new round that we've tested in gel and has performed really, really well. Uh, the, the train and defend, the W line is another one. Um, but there are many, many other manufacturers out there, again, big names that you would recognize that have quality, proven, tested defensive ammunition. It's the kind of ammunition that law enforcement uses, the kind that you're going to see any of the major instructors recommending, any of the national names that you know, we're going to recommend that a good bonded hollow point bullet from a trusted manufacturer. So, um, you know, ammunition is is uh, incredibly important in the process of talking about what you're going to do to be prepared for armed defense. And knowing that your round is going to perform the way you want it to perform inside of the bad guy when you do your job uh, appropriately pulling your gun out and putting a round or many rounds on target is a big part of the equation. So I wouldn't leave that to chance. You don't want to mess with the remanufactured. Don't mess with the hand loads. Original manufactured ammunition only for defensive use. So that was uh, a good question and an important topic. What else What else is on your mind today, Jeff? Yeah, as a follow-up to that, the, for the, your carry ammo, how often should you cycle that through? I mean, if, if I have my carry ammo that I don't shoot at the range, I don't shoot with my friends or wherever, how often should I recycle or cycle that through and shoot it and then get a new box and, and prepare? I think that's, I think that's a good question. I think it's the kind of question that a lot of people have, you know, in their mind, kind of like changing the oil in your car. Exactly. And um, what we have to remember is that the, the battery in your, uh, smoke alarm and the, the the oil in your car, those things are actually being used, right? So the, in other words, the energy is being drawn from that battery during the year, potentially every time your, your electricity in your house flickers, even if you have a hardwired uh, smoke detector, that battery is taking some draw. It's probably got some draw coming out of it all the time. The oil in your car is doing its job, right? It's, it's lubricating and it's, it's losing its viscosity and it's getting dirty and it's doing all those things. So it, both of those things sort of run out, right? They, their lifetime is fixed because of use. 
The bullets in your defensive carry gun, they're not being used in any sense that would wear them down or wear them out, right? The, the gunpowder doesn't get less powerful over time. The, the, the cavity on your hollow point doesn't, you know, expand or melt or collapse or any of that. So there isn't, there isn't really any hard and fast rule on me telling you how often or how frequently you should change out your carry ammo. I mean, I certainly have fired rounds that I've had in my possession. I'll find somewhere that, you know, they, they have surface corrosion and they came out of the bottom of some bag that went on a hunting trip that I unloaded my carry gun. They, I don't know. However, it ended up where it ended up when I shot it. You would have looked at it and you just said, oh, I wouldn't trust my life with that ammunition. And I wouldn't. And that's probably why I shot it on the range. You probably find some some videos of me kind of joking about that, you know, in social media history out there somewhere. Um, ultimately, I think that the reason it's nice to set a regimen or a schedule on, train, on trading out your carry ammo is it gives you a couple of things. First of all, it gives you more experience using it in your gun. You, you make sure that the gun is still running well. In other words, if you, if you don't shoot your gun at all, uh, you don't practice, you don't train, then how do you know that you don't have a spring that broke? or your, your lubricant attracted some dust or some, some lint or something and now your gun's all gummed up. You know, we've seen, we've all heard horror stories in the training industry of the person who brings the gun to class or the police officer especially who brings the gun to class. They've been carrying this, that gun in their holster since the last time they had to qualify a year ago and it's just, you know, full of... Uh, crumbs from lunch and, and lint from the uniform and dirt from the time they tackled somebody and rolled around on the ground and all that's in that gun. So just cycling your gun is really important. So if nothing else, if you're not the kind of person that trains regularly or practices regularly, saying you're going to go to the range once a year and shoot your carry ammo at least is a function check on your gun and the reliability with that ammo. So I think that's a pretty good benchmark is, you know, once a year, maybe on your birthday or sometime around your birthday, you go out to the range, take the cam the ammunition that you've been carrying in those magazines or the ammunition that's loaded in the magazines you have for staged de a home defense situation or workplace defense and shoot it up, go out, spend the $1,500 to replace it um, with new ammo. That will also give you an opportunity to revisit your defensive ammo carry choice. Because again, I just mentioned uh, three different lines of defensive ammunition, all of which exist under the Winchester brand. We could add the PDX one, they had the PDX one defender line. That line went away several years ago, but the bullet design has also evolved, right? So it's not just the branding. It's not just the packaging. It's also the bullet de design. So if you had ammo from five years ago, it may not be the best latest engineered design to give you the best terminal performance from the company you like with the shape and the power that goes well with your guns. In other words, the bullet shape has a lot to do with reliability and the power has a lot to do with reliability and also shooting comfort. So if you have a, a plus P load, for example, your gun's probably going to be more reliable with it, but that recoil might mean you're shooting slower or it might even be punishing in some calibers for some people out of some firearms. So revisiting your caliber, or not necessarily your caliber, re revisiting your ammunition choice um, is always good to do as well because there may be something better out there for you for your gun that wasn't even around six months or a year ago or certainly two, three, four, five years ago. So that's another good reason to cycle your ammunition. The last reason, and unfortunately, I think this is cited far too often, but you know it's worth talking about, is the difference between the carry ammo and your training ammo. Now, in, for practical purposes in 9mm, there really shouldn't be that much difference between your carry ammo and your practice ammo. If there is a big difference, I might wonder if you're carrying the wrong bullet 
or if your reloads or hand-loaded remanufactured stuff is even going to be reliable in a training environment. In other words, if you're really training in a dynamic way, unorthodox shooting positions, you know, really challenging yourself and challenging your, your ability to get the gun into a position to shoot under all plausible circumstances, weak rounds may not be cycling your gun. And that's, again, is going to be a distraction. Unreliable ammunition in a training or practice environment is a distraction from what you're supposed to be working on. So you should have pretty evenly matched uh, it recoil impulse and reliability. Now, of course, again, I'm going to keep going back to Winchester. Anytime we talk about ammunition, the train and defend line was specifically designed to be ballistically matched. So in other words, the training rounds, the, the solid rounds and the hollow point rounds are shaped the same way and they are the exact same recoil impulse or, or power load inside of that that brass. So the amount of uh, powder behind the bullet and of course the weight of the bullet, that's the same. So what, what that means is you don't have that factor of a difference between your carry ammo and your defensive area, your, your training ammo. But when I think, I think that myth or that concern really comes from back in the old days of revolvers where somebody might have a 357 Magnum revolver that's capable of shooting 38 special ammunition and they would shoot, and obviously a, a revolver doesn't need any recoil impulse to be reliable. So people would very often go shoot very, very light loads in out of 38 special ammunition in their gun that was rated for 357 Magnum, but then carry 357 Magnum full power loads. And of course, there is a <laughs> dramatic difference in the way that feels when that gun goes off when you compare, you know, 38 caliber wad cutters to the 357 Magnum uh, hollow points that are full bore loads. And, and in the nine millimeter, the modern guns, modern ammunition, that just really isn't the case anymore. All right. This is really helpful. And I know a lot of people may be new to pistols and they might have just picked up whatever box was available, but it's something that everyone should consider as they uh, continue their education in, uh, in self-defense. Absolutely. And, and as a hand loader yourself, I, I, I hope that does, it, does everything I said sort of make sense and resonate with you with what you've seen inside of the hand loading community that sort of results may vary? The results vary widely based on on the operator. I know some who are very particular, even in their hand loads, as, as, as very particular as a, a, a precision rifle reloader is or a loader is. Um, even though in, in a right in a pistol, you, you know, you may not, you don't have that long barrel to really make that much of a difference, but you know, there's, yeah, yeah, it varies widely. So once again, I, that's why I think it's important that hand loading for yourself, if you're going to do a good job, you know, have at it and you're welcome in my classes and on my ranges, but taking hand loads from somebody else probably want to put an asterisk on that and go ahead and just spend the money, even if it's your trusted friend, family member, whatever else. <laughs> Hand load for yourself, um, buy that remanufactured or original manufacturer ammunition for your own personal use. And that will do it for our training segment. Once again, brought to you by personaldefensenetwork.com. Thank you for listening to the Rob Pincus podcast. Please share, please comment, please give us your feedback. And as always, if for some reason you have not subscribed, go do that right now. Subscribe to the Rob Pincus podcast. Thanks for listening.